as you spend time in the morning, in the evening, in the Psalms, every time you come to the Psalms and you sing, you pray, and you read them, it should bring a greater awareness and a height to that Psalm. Psalm 47, it's that Psalm that Finsky wrote, that great anthem, God has gone up with a triumphant shout. And when we think about God going up and ascending with a triumphant shout, we see that most vividly and in the reality of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had come to win the victory and has gone up, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and now He gives gifts to the church. And what a beautiful picture that is, especially this time of the year when we look to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The most astounding mystery and most profound miracle that has ever occurred is the incarnation of our Lord. Taking the message this morning on this Christmas season from Galatians chapter 4. And in Galatians, we uh, are somewhat midstream into the context of this uh, book where our passage is found. We'll begin reading at verse 1 through verse 7 this morning for this message. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Our gracious Father, we ask that we would come to this text today with open hearts and minds and that your Spirit would work powerfully in our lives to give us a greater understanding of who we are in Christ, what our relationship is with you, our Father, and what great power has been given to us, what great grace has been bestowed upon us as sons of God and heirs of the kingdom. And Lord, we ask that if there's one here struggling today with his relationship with you, that you would bring that soul to yourself and comfort him in these truths. We pray if someone is struggling today with life and with troubles or trials, that somehow in some way, through the Spirit of God, would make very specific application to encourage, to strengthen, and to bless that person with this truth. But most of all, God, we ask that through the preaching and receiving of your word, this would be our worship, and you would be glorified in our very midst as you show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is the time when we celebrate the miracle of all miracles, as we read that great is the mystery of godliness, that God became flesh. This plan of God had been set from the very beginning. It was in the mind of God, yea, even in the decree of God, before He created the world and the heavens and all that in them is. Man would need a Redeemer. Man would need a Redeemer to save him out of his bondage. A bondage and slavery to sin in order to genuinely worship our true Creator. And that's what this season, that's what this time is all about that we celebrate. And it's worthy of our celebration. Because all of our problems in life can be addressed in this great miracle of miracles, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Our world is full of turmoil and war and strife. But Jesus came to bring peace. Our world is full of sin and slavery to sin, but He came to bring release from that bondage. Our world is full of false religions and idolatry. He came to restore us back to our Creator, the only one true God. Our world is full of deception and lies and hypocrisy, 
He came to bring the truth. Our world is full of filth, yet he came to clean it all up. Our world is full of murder and harm and divorce and adultery, and he came to bring life and purity. Our world is full of sadness and tears and stress and sorrow and anxiety. And he came to bring joy and gladness and that inner peace that only he can give. The list goes on and on, and everything wrong in this world, he came to save and make right. And that goes for your life personally as it does for this world corporately. Everything wrong with you, he came to redeem, to restore, and to make right. But he came to do even more than that. He came to also make you fit for a royal family. The royal of royals. He came to make you a child of God, and He came to establish you as a prince and an heir of a great inheritance. And this time of the year, as we look back to Christ and what He came to do, and the reality of that historic event some 2,000 years ago as He was born in Bethlehem of a woman, and born as a child, we come to remember what He did, but we remember who He is. And as He is not finished with His work here, there is a time that we look forward to, that which will He complete when He comes again. So it's always a time when we look back and we look forward. And to our very present experience, we say, thank you God and amen. And we live in the light of this with great gladness today. One of our biggest problems as Christians is that we simply forget who we are. The Bible calls us to remember and to reckon ourselves to be who God has made us to be. Reckon yourselves. To be dead indeed unto sin. Reckon yourselves to be alive unto God and a child of His and a great heir of this wonderful inheritance. So it's a good reminder as we go into this Christmas week ahead. Remember who you are. Remember who God is. Remember who Christ is. Remember what He came to do. Remember what He has done. What He has finished. Remember what He continues to promise that He will bring to completion. And you live your entire life in the context and the light of all of those truths that He has revealed. So let us consider a few truths from this passage this morning as we consider what Christ came to do and why He came here to this earth. First, the Bible informs us that we are heirs of God with an inheritance that is awaiting us, not as slaves anymore. And he speaks that clearly in the first part of chapter 4. Let's skip right on down to verse 7 for just a moment. He says, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You're not a slave. You're in his family. You're a child. You're a son. And if you're a child in the royal king's household, you're an heir. And that's where this passage is going. If you are a child, the fact is, you're not merely a child in a peasant's home. You're not a child growing up in poverty. You're not a child that does not have something even greater coming to you. You are a royal heir with tremendous rights and privileges that are awaiting you. This passage is denoting your sonship with God. And as a Christian, you're a part of this royal family of God. You're a child of God. You are a royal family. You're no longer a slave. Now let's back up just a moment and go back through this passage and let's consider some of these profound truths so that you can reckon yourself to whom God has made you in Christ and you can reckon who He is and you can consider that your life is alive with God in Christ. 
This passage in its immediate context shows us something about our relationship to the law that has been broken in our, and, and has changed in Christ. Let's back up and read the context from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through verse 26. It says there in verse 23 of Galatians 3, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now that's a summary of chapter 3 and what Paul has been leading up to in this book of Galatians to this point. We become children of God by faith in Jesus the Messiah. There is a double sense in which the word faith, this word pistis, is, is used here. And the, the faith, as we see it as a noun, has to do with the corpus of the truths of which encompasses the very uh, faith that we hold to. But it's also acting as a verb, that which we believe, we entrust ourselves into. The faith has to do with God and His covenant promises that were revealed uh, most significantly and in, in, in most um, in its fulfillment in Christ. And as we entrust ourselves into the faith by believing by faith, we then become children of God. The faith which would be fulfilled in Christ when all of these truths would have its consummation and fulfillment in Him was kept. And there was something that was a guardian and a steward, a schoolmaster, if you will, and that was the law. We want to be careful here. There is a a right way to understand this, and there is many wrong ways to misunderstand this. But he goes on and he says, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, now he just says, you're children of God by faith. That's where he ends the chapter. You're children of Abraham in the same way that Abraham was a child of God by faith. So it's not merely just the Jews who were of the sonship of Christ. It was those who are of faith in the finished work of Jesus. Now, if you are a child of God, he goes on in verse 1, Now I say, an heir, so long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Let's unpack that just a bit more. In verse 1, we have the difference between an heir and a slave. An heir is a son who has the promised rights and privileges to receive the benefits of the inheritance. Once that inheritance is received, that son will have full right and privileges to exercise and to enjoy his inheritance. A slave who does not have the inheritance because he's not a part of the family, he is uh, like the... Ishmael, if you will. He is like Eleazar. He is not the Isaac. So he is not that which has rights or the inheritance that will become his. He has no rights. He has no legal privileges to the estate at all. He is a slave. He is a household uh, slave within that particular estate. Now while a young son who is an heir... While he is still a child, he is nonetheless an heir. There is a status difference between that slave and the heir. But he has not yet received those full rights and privileges of his inheritance, and he can't even command the household slaves, not legally and not by authority. So in the manner of the exertion of those rights and privileges that the inheritance offers him one day when he comes into the full orbed understanding and reception of those, 
he's not any different from the household slaves. But the fact is, he's a son. And as a son, he's an heir. And that does place him in quite a different status. And while he's growing up in the household, he's under guardians and stewards who train him in the ways of the household, who train him up in his royalty, who train him up so that he can be responsible for the inheritance once he receives it. When Prince William was a child, he was instructed in all the ways of royalty. One of his nannies reported when he was younger, she says, quote, Wills already knows he's destined to be a king. He once tried to give orders to the soldiers in the Royal Highland Fusilers Regiment and threatened to sack them. And then she says, such behavior always brings a reprimand. End of quote. The young Prince William and Harry had nannies. They were analogous to the, the slaves. They were servants of the household. They were not in, inheritors of the royalty. But these nannies acted as William and Harry's uh, disciplinaries. They're schoolmasters. They're guardians. And when they were children, when, when William and, and Harry were children... They had very limited exposure to Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth had desired that the two princes be present only for family photos and for holidays. But neither she nor their parents want the boys cutting ribbons or laying cornerstones. She said, quote, there will be Time enough for that when they grow up. End of quote. But they were sons. There was inheritance. They were different from the nannies. They knew who they were, and they knew what their destiny was. They simply didn't have all the legal rights to it yet. They were sons, and as sons, they were heirs. But they had to grow up first. They had to learn what the manner and the ways and the protocol and the customs and the culture of the Windsors would be. So that one day, they would resume that Windsor royalty with all of its full rights and privileges and responsibilities. And that's the imagery that we have here of the law and what it did before Christ came. Before faith, that is, before the fulfillment of all these things in Christ... The law was a schoolmaster. It was a guardian. It was a disciplinarian. And the imagery here is that of a child of God being brought up and raised as a child unto the time in which he would receive those full rights and privileges. Now the imagery, it starts off here as being very corporate in that sense that Israel was that child. Israel, corporately speaking, was a child under the Old Covenant, and they were brought together, and they were uh, set apart, and God gave them uh, all of the, 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 the status of being the children of God. They had the administration that were uh, training them up in the ways of royalty and teaching them of the laws and of the kingdom, and, and here they were under this guardian and under this disciplinarian, the schoolmaster of the law. One thing to keep in mind that what is true for a corporate child is also applicable to the individual. So before Christ came, Israel grew up under these schoolmasters, this this law, if you will. The law was a guardian, but it identified also who we were. Verse 3 tells us then that even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But there is a sense here, see, that because of the law, we were in bondage to the elemental things here. The law speaks to the legal status of this inheritance. As children, we were no different in the legal aspect from slaves. 
There would be an appointed time when we reach maturity and that legal rights and privileges would be bestowed. But the law, as a schoolmaster, taught us about the righteousness of God. It schooled us in the ways of God. But it also restricted us. It chastened us. It spanked us. And in fact, the law itself enslaved us. The bondage we came under because of this schoolmaster was because of our own sin, our own shortcomings, our own failings. And that is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the strength of sin is the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The schoolmaster was a good teacher. But the problem was, we were not very good students. So while we were yet children, the law reigned over us. It ruled us. Yet there is a sense that everyone who is not a child of God is still in the slavery to the law. In slavery to sin. Which not only rules over them, but it sentences them for their failures. And that's what the law does. It not only brings them... To that understanding, but it also sentences them. And there's a bondage here that the law maintained due to our own sin and inability to keep it. But the law itself had revealed, in itself the law had revealed, one that would come. It always had prophesied and looked forward to and and always testified of the Messiah that would come to fulfill all of this that is in the law. And to release us from its bondage, from its tutorage. So there's two things that this passage is addressing. Number one, who really is a child of God? And that's what Galatians 3 addresses. Well, it's those of faith. It's like Abraham. But number two, if you then are a child, then you are an heir. And that's what Galatians 4 is bringing us into. Galatians verse 4 and 5 then explains to us the essence of how all this came about in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Like first to look at those five points. The fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. When the time was ripened, when the time had been fulfilled, and God had appointed this time, for when children grow up, and He would appoint this time, when this child would become an adult, He had it all laid out from the very beginning. And the Bible does make definite distinctions between adulthood and childhood and the responsibilities that adults have and the immaturity of children to be able to maintain and keep those responsibilities. When we train up our children, we must definitely keep those biblical distinctions in mind. These are children They need to be trained, and we have to train them for their adulthood. They are not yet adulthood, but we train them toward it. And if we don't have that very deliberateness in mind, they will not be able to fulfill the responsibilities once they reach that chronological age. But not so with God. He provided all that was necessary and trained us with the law and trained us and told us about our adulthood that was coming, and then He comes and He fulfills the whole thing. The law had done its work. It had trained us. It shown us Christ. And it had shown us the righteousness of God. It showed us the requirements. It showed us the beauty. It showed us what was good. It showed us what was true. And the children could see their failure. We would see that the law itself did not have the power to make us obedient to it even though the obedience to that law would have been glorious and beautiful and good, and that's what was expected. The law itself was impotent 
to make us who we were supposed to be. Good tutors, yes, a perfect tutor. But it could not make us or establish us in our royal family. So when the time were full and they were of God's appointment, that he had predetermined the time when he allowed the law to train us over a thousand years. And as the time had come, and the children keep seeing it's impossible, and it's impossible, we keep failing, and he keeps revealing to us. He takes us into exile into Egypt. And He brings us out with a mighty hand. And He calls us to remember the law to those whom He just redeemed. But the law says that there's going to be failure for the people of God once again. And so they did. Time and time and time again did the people fail. Did the children fall. And ultimately they went into exile in Babylon. And God brought them back out as the second exodus out of Babylon, but only physically. We were still in Babylon in spiritual bondage, awaiting yet that king. We came back to our land. We came back to Zion. But we saw no king upon the throne. We saw no David ruling over all the nations. And we wondered for 400 and something years, well, what is going on? We're out of Babylon, but we're still being under the rule of Persians and Medes and then the Greeks and here the Romans. But in the fullness of time, when the time was ripe, God sent forth His Son to be that King, the Messiah, the one that the law itself had prophesied and had shown that He would come And so, that righteousness was never going to come by us keeping the law. God sent forth His Son. The second point here, it says that God in the fullness of time sent His Son, His Son born of a woman. That's the great mystery. That is the miracle of miracles. That's the most astounding miracle that has ever taken place. Is God's Son. God Himself would become manifest in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness that God became flesh. God of gods, born of a woman. We have all kinds of... Genetics that we play around with. We can breed particular animals and we can breed dogs and we can breed them in such a way that over the course of those breeds that they can be trained or or bred to certain um, purposes. And and yet, uh, you can take a a donkey, and you can take a horse, and you can breed them. But what comes out is a mule. And mules can't produce more mules. The only way you can get a mule is take a horse, and you take a donkey, and you get a mule. A mule is not a horse. A mule is not a donkey. It is something third other between the two. It has characteristics of both. Um, that's not what's going on here. And that's why it's such a mystery. This Son of God, this Messiah that was promised, this Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. He was not a characteristic of a compilation of some God and some man. He wasn't some kind of third other. He wasn't like a mule. This is a dual truth that makes Jesus uniquely qualified to be the mediator between God 
and man. He is fully man and fully God, and the only one qualified to stand in the gap between heaven and earth and bridge that gap to bring them together as creator and creature come together into the Godhead. It's an astounding mystery. There's a profound truth. We don't become God, but in Christ, we are accepted by God into the covenant relationship of the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And His great covenant love has reached down and brought us up into this covenantal love. This everlasting love, so that we are considered His children and a part of the royal house. Born of a woman was this Son of God. But not only was He born of a woman, the third principle here, or the third truth says, He was born under the law. Well, That law was the tutor. He was born under that schoolmaster. He was born under the guardian and the disciplinarian of the law. Yes. He was born under the same tutelage that we were. He was able to feel the weakness of our humanity. And he grew up under the law. And the Bible says he learned obedience. He learned obedience through the things which he suffered. But he did learn, and he learned well, and he grew in the wisdom and the stature, both in favor with God and man. He learned where we never learned. He grew up keeping the law, not just in the outward appearance, but from the heart. He knew from whom the law came. He had a very personal identity himself. Where not a single man before was able to keep the law, he kept the law even as a child, growing up keeping the law. He learned all the lessons the schoolmaster was designed to teach. In fact, he was the star student of this schoolmaster. He never got reprimanded by the law. He never found shortcoming of the law. The law could never sentence him for any failings. He kept the whole law perfectly from his childhood so that he never was in bondage to it. He was never in bondage. It was such a a beautiful relationship. It had no hold of him like it did for us. It could not condemn him or find a single fault with him. And the very thing that bound us into slavery was not true for him. He was never in slavery to it. Therefore, He alone was able to rescue us from our slavery. Which brings me to the fourth point. He was the Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law. Number four, to redeem those under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. Now, redemption is not really a very, it's not a very common term for us in our culture today. The word is one that we think about biblically most often. Perhaps maybe we hear of occasions when a particular person was kidnapped and being held at ransom for a very large sum of money and which they would give in exchange. That would be the closest thing that we have to redemption. And that's why, thankfully, you don't know by experience what this word means in that way that I'm aware of. The word in its very common form was used in the Bible uh, for in those times as far as uh, taking armor off or even 
uh, unbridling a horse or loosening an oxen from the yoke. It's simply, in its most mundane form, meant to loose or to free. But when the word is used of certain people in particular circumstance, it means a whole lot more than simply loosening them. There's a time for several hundred years which actually came to a climax in about the 17th century that one of the dangers in England uh, and the surrounding areas there, but England had a lot to do with it, so I'm going to use them as, a, as an illustration here, of the Barbary Pirates. The Barbary Pirates were pirates out of North Africa, and they were authorized by their Ottoman government to go and seize uh, the ships, particularly of of Christians, whether it be Protestants or Catholics, for the purpose of taking not the goods off the ship as much as it was for taking the people off the ship to take them into slavery. Now this actually went on uh, for several hundred years. It came to a peak around the 17th century, and they were taking slaves for the Ottoman Empire. Tens of thousands of, of people were taken in slavery from the Barbary pirates. There was a religious order early on among Christians called the Trinitarians, which established um, uh, in order to collect money in order to buy back some of those who were in slavery. It was able to accomplish that purpose only in a handful of times, not for many, but nonetheless, it was still something that was exercised. In the 18th century, the problem became so, so great that even other states then entered into this redemption process, or even a redemption business, as it was. In Denmark, at the beginning of the 18th century, money was collected systematically in all the churches, and it was called a slave fund. It was established by the state in 1715, 1715, and the funds were brought in through a compulsory insurance for seafarers. Should they have been captured by the pirates, then they would then have money to redeem them back to their safety. So there was a, a pretty good incentive for you to contribute if you particularly were a, a seafaring or a merchant that way. It was the Barbary pirate threat that led the United States to the founding of the United States Navy in 1794. That's how prominent the problem was back then. One article noted, quote, while the United States did secure peace treaties with the Barbary states, it was obliged to pay tribute for the protection from attack. The burden was substantial. In 1800, the payments for the ransom and tribute to the Barbary states amounted to the 20% of the United States federal government's annual expenditures. 20% of our federal government funds went to pay the ransom price for the Barbary pirates. That's the idea of redemption. It's a ransom payment made to release those who are in slavery. And that is the reason Christ was born. To redeem. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us. He was born to pay the redemption price to release us from the bondage of the slavery to sin. And the redemption price would be His own life. Life for life. His own blood for ours. And the design and the purpose is noted in the fifth point, which it goes on to say in verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law, that, so that. In other words, there's a, a further design, a further intention here, a further purpose, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now to really establish this in its proper understanding and framework, we need to know a little bit more about adoption. 
Because we often mistake what we think today in our English meaning of that term adoption by what we know about adoption, and we translate it or we put it back into the context of Galatians or Romans. And I think that's a mistake. Now, as beautiful as adoption is, and taking a child who was not naturally born in our home and adopting him as a child through the legal process, in our culture, we legally place children in our family who are not a natural part of it. And it's a beautiful thing. Some of you have been adopted in that way. You've got parents where you previously did not know them. That is not the, the full-orbed understanding of biblical adoption. In our sense of the term adoption, children were not children by nature. They became children by a legal act. But it's important for us to realize that we do not become children of God by adoption. We do not become children of God by adoption. We become children of God by a new birth. We naturally come into the family of God by a rebirth through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and we become children of God because we are born into the children of God. We are born into the family of God. We have a natural parent now. Not just a, a legal one that has been, but we naturally have been born into, and we have a familial father through which has always been in a familial relationship with us in this very tender, loving manner. He has always known us. It's important that we do realize that we're born into this family of God. 1 John 3, 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. 2 Peter 3 speaks about this giving us these wonderful promises that you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now, that doesn't mean that we become God, but it does mean that we partake of this nature in the sense that we are born into the family. So we come into the family of God by a rebirth of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit where He places us mystically into Christ and we become partakers in communion, in fellowship, in koinonia with Christ in God. We become family members of God through natural agency, not legal agency. Now there are certainly legal aspects. There's justification, which is a legal declaration of our righteous standing before God based upon our brother and Lord Jesus. And there's adoption. And adoption also has its legal aspects to it. Adoption is something that has to do with inheritance. And as you currently, and you currently do indeed have the spirit of adoption so that you know that you're no longer slaves. And that's what the Bible's speaking. You have the spirit of adoption. And by that, you know that you're not a slave, and he can cry out, and he does so, Abba, Father. But your inheritance, the full-orbed appreciation and all the rights and the privileges of your inheritance, which you have because you are sons, still remains. You have not come yet into the full right and privileges of what Christ has redeemed you for. In the ancient days, adoption was the coming of an age where a son received his inheritance. There was a legal ceremony, and that legal ceremony involved the son, and he was placed at that legal ceremony into his full position with all of the rights and the privileges that he had. In many ways, I guess it could be somewhat analogous to when a royal son grows up and then all of a sudden they establish a title for him and he is now 
Charles, Prince of Wales, and there's this whole legal ceremony that goes on that he now is the prince over Wales in this official capacity. Analogous, but not quite the same, because for a, a, a child to receive the inheritance, there was this kind of adoption, and they called this adoption. The nature of our inheritance that we receive by adoption is the redemption of our bodies. And that's why in this sense it is still future for us. And why Romans 8.23 says we are waiting for our adoption, that is, the redemption of our bodies. And there is still this future aspect where we will have the redemption of our bodies and there we receive all the privileges and the benefits as sons to the full-orbed inheritance that God has created for us. That God has established for us that in His Son, He redeemed us to. You know of your sonship. You know of your legal status. Because the Spirit cries out in you, Abba, Father. The word Abba is a very close word to a very familial uh, aspect of, of kind of like our Daddy. Daddy. Perhaps it might even be more like a, a, a small child, more like Dada, because he can't quite get Daddy out yet. It's the sound the infant first makes when he begins to try to call Father, Father, uh, Abba, Dada. See? It works. There's a very tender familial aspect that is revealed here by the Spirit. Yes, you're sons. You've been born into the family of God. Yes, you are an heir because you are a son and you have a full inheritance. And I can assure you of this because you're, you have a family father and you can you cry out. Dada. As an infant. As a child. Every morning, I get up. It's customary. It has been for years. All, all my life that I can remember. My kids come in. This is not orchestrated, but they come in. Good morning, Daddy. And they usually give me a hug and a kiss. Some are a little more deficient in that than others, but they still nonetheless do. And it's just a wonderful thing to know that my kids can just come up to their father, and they tell me that they love me, and they hug me, and they kiss me, and the morning starts that way. And they know that I'm their father. And there's such a beautiful, familial, tender relationship there that God wants you to also have that same kind of experience that you can just run up to Him every morning and say, Father, I love you. And you know there's a familial embrace. You're a son of God. He has birthed you into the family. But not only that, you are a part of a royal family. And by right, there's an inheritance that He has for you. He has promises to you. And the Spirit seals that until the very coming of the full-orbed adoption where you have the full privilege and the rights of all of that He has acquired for you. Christ came to purchase that for you. And He did. And His work was efficacious and now you are co-heirs with Him. How astounding is that? You're going to judge angels one day. In this season, we're called to remember what Christ came to do. Great is the mystery of godliness. He, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem you unto this adoption of this beautiful inheritance so that He didn't just take you out of the mire and put you back where He found you. He didn't just take you out of the mud and the muck of sin and cleaned you up and given you a new start this way. He took you out and cleansed you up and purchased you and placed you out of a peasant's household into a royal household as someone who has an inheritance the likes of which you cannot even imagine. And the glory is yet to come. 
So whatever you may be struggling with this season or this time, just know that you've got a heavenly Father who's had all of this planned out and all of it thought about, including you specifically, even the the challenges that you may be going through particularly. And He knows when His children suffer. And He knows how to deal with it. Boy, does He know how to deal with it. His son suffered. And He dealt with it. His son is victorious. And He's going to make you victorious. Whatever the challenges you may be facing or the uncertainties of life or the trials that have discouraged you, know that you can remember that you are a child of God and a child and also an heir. And you've got a complete inheritance yet awaiting you. So live by reckoning yourself dead indeed unto sin. Reckon yourself alive unto God and live in the light of what's coming right now with all the full certainty and assurance and trust in this one Redeemer who came, gave His life, suffered, learned obedience by the things which He suffered, endured the shameful death of the cross, was resurrected, is ascended, and now gives you power to save you to the uttermost. And you will be saved to the uttermost, but you will also have a glorious inheritance and live today in the light of the truth that He has promised. We are heirs. And the full privileges and the benefits are still yet to come. But as we look back this Christmas, make sure you're also looking forward and live in the light of both of those truths. Our gracious Father, make us mindful of not only who we are, but who Christ is. What we have done against you and trespass and sin, but what He has done in His complete fulfillment as we were at hatred with you you loved us with an everlasting love as we dwelt here in the fallen darkness of this earth you left the glory of light and came here to redeem us out of the bondage and you have set our feet high upon a rock and you have made us to sit with Christ in the heavenlies And we are an heir because we are your children. And how thankful we are for the victory that Christ has won. For the relationship we have in Him. That even God, our Creator, who is holy beyond our imagination, has now revealed Himself as Father. And the Spirit cries out that that is true in our own hearts. We are thankful that you have brought us into this covenant love and this relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you brought us into this in Christ, applied it with the Spirit, have decreed it from before the foundation of the world by your fatherly care, and have loved us and will love us to the end. And how thankful we are that this life is not all we have looking for. We look for an inheritance that you have have revealed an inheritance that you have claimed, an inheritance that you have provided, an inheritance that you have gifted. An astounding thing. And as we look back to what has been fulfilled already, keep us ever mindful to look forward to what is to be completed when Christ comes back. And may we live today in light of that truth. Give us the joy in doing so, in gladness of heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.